Across the span of human history, for anyone who looks hard enough, there's always some achievement or discovery that's absolutely amazing. The invention of the wheel, mathematics, the scientific method, agriculture, husbandry, the Stirling engine, atomic theory, and board games. The act of groups of people coming together to play games of chance, strategy, and manipulation in order to win imaginary contests is older than recorded history itself. Early incarnations were presumably based heavily on dice, or rather, they were based on two-sided sticks and stones with one side left untouched and the other painted. It would be easy to say that since they were so simple, modern board games, games of chance, games of strategy, must be somehow better or that there's been some sort of qualitative advancement in the fundamental workings of board games. I mean, after all, we've advanced in almost every other way, right? Well, not so much. Consider, for example, the Royal Game of Ur. The Royal Game of Ur dates back to around 2600 BCE at the latest, and was discovered in the tomb of a royal member of the Sumerian Ur dynasty in what's now Iraq. It's played by two people, each with seven flattened round pieces and three shared tetrahedral, that means four-sided, dice. The object of the game is simple. Each player rolls the dice at the beginning of their turn, and the results of the roll are how many spaces they may move any piece, with a few exceptions, with the goal being to move all seven of your pieces onto the board at one end and off the board at the other. There are, obviously, small quirks that add a bit more fun. In order to move a piece off the board to score one of the seven points needed to win, you have to roll the exact number needed to get your pieces off the board. You can also knock opponents' pieces off the board by landing on them with your own, and some squares grant you a second roll of the dice for your turn. Think of backgammon, as envisioned by a bunch of drunkards, and you've more or less got the picture. But that still doesn't answer the most fundamental question faced by game enthusiasts. Why do we play them? For some, it's the love of mechanics. If you've ever played D&D and had the misfortune to go through a campaign with a person that calls himself a power or metagamer or a min-maxer, that's what I'm talking about. The objective reasoned manipulation of odds, the leveraging of rules to benefit you in that moment, which is an act called lawyering, and above all, a dedication to understanding the game as an abstract coagulation of numbers and functional results. In the company of such fine people, you'll hear terms like OP, broken, or nerfed, and you'll get to learn the finer points of stacking, which is both a strategy and a mechanic. For others, such as myself, it's all about the engagement. There is nothing more satisfying than sticking it to your buddies in a game of Risk, and you get that Really awesome winning moment backed by angelic choruses where you slam down the final piece to bring in a crushing victory. To use a very technical term, it's bananas. See, when that happens, I'm not me anymore. I'm the conquering hero that the genie shouted about. And whether I admit it or not, that's the magic of a board game. It happens to all of us, regardless of whether we choose to admit it. Whether you're a power gamer doesn't matter. The most interesting and unsettling thing about board games is that they create real, complex emotional responses from the players. We tell ourselves it's just a game. I tell myself it's just a game. But how many people do you know that can play Monopoly without at least partially seeing their friends, families, and loved ones as mindless, greedy monsters? Or if you win, do you maybe feel like you deserved it? Games have a, a strange power over us. 
The words on a card or the arrangement of miniature characters on a square grid can evoke a huge range of emotions, from sadness to triumph. As a result of those emotions, we temporarily step out of our world, the real world, and we place ourselves in a completely different one. One where the arbitrary mandates of a dice roll can cause us to feel that something real has happened, with the result being that we feel like we have to have some sort of equal, opposite, and real reaction. Then, whenever the game is done, we put the pieces away, we cinch up our dice bags, we place our vintage supremacy box back on the shelf, we file away our character sheets and go about our normal lives with fond memories of the experience. We tell ourselves that the things we felt during the game were just part of the game as a way of separating what's real and what's not, that any compulsion we felt only exists as a part of that game. But the problem is that game mechanics are only a reflection of the world around us, a sort of sick farce of the forces and tensions we feel in our everyday lives, which compel us to act in one way or another. We appreciate and apply the fundamentals of game mechanics when it comes to risk, clue, poker, monopoly, cribbage, backgammon, or blackjack. But when it comes to every other part of our lives, we deny that such a thing could exist outside of that limited arena. Even though we talk about things in the real world being a system, or we refer to a set of circumstances and say, that's how the game is played. Mr. Pop, the humblest citizen in all the land, when clad in the arm of a righteous cause, is stronger than all the hosts of error. I come to speak to you in the defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity. When this debate is concluded, a motion will be made to lay upon the table the resolution offered in commendation of the administration and also the resolution offered in condemnation of the administration. We object to bringing this question down to the level of persons. The individual is but an atom. He is born, he acts, he dies. But principles are eternal. And this has been a contest over a principle. On May 26th of this year, 2017, a man by the name of Jeremy Joseph Christian attacked three people in Portland, Oregon, killing two and badly injuring the third. All because the three victims of his attack stepped in to defend a pair of teenage Muslim girls. When brought before the court, Christian loudly stated his maxim for everyone to hear. Free speech or die. A few weeks later, on June 14th, James Hodgkinson set out to attack a specific group of people. Scott Desjardins, Trent Franks, Jeff Duncan, Jim Jordan, Mo Brooks, Morgan Griffith, and Steve Scalise. All of them were either members of the Freedom Caucus or belonged to caucuses or committees that had some ideological overlap. On the morning of the 14th, Hodgkinson opened fire on a group of GOP lawmakers, injuring Scalise and others while they practiced for a baseball game. The backlash from these events was, predictably, something that followed partisan lines. See, the problem is that both Jeremy Christian and James Hodgkinson voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries of 2016. Cue the extreme leftist lectures. The left is nothing but hypocrites, the left isn't honest about what it wants, and on and on and on. Which is, of course, problematic. 
But to understand that, we have to go back a few years. Okay, a few decades, well, centuries. The year is 1793, and George Washington had just been elected by a unanimous vote in the Electoral College, with 132 votes out of 132 electors. His second inauguration took place in March of 1793, and in April he signed into law a rather contentious and obscure thing. The Proclamation of Neutrality. Let me set the stage so that this proclamation makes a bit more sense. The Proclamation of Neutrality declared the U.S. a neutral power in the conflicts surrounding the French Revolution, which had begun in 1792. Austria, Prussia, Sardinia, Great Britain, the United Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, and the Holy Roman Empire, or what was left of it, would spend the next five years raining down blow after blow on the First Republic of France in what's called the War of the First Coalition. France declared war on the Habsburg dynasty of Austria. Austria invaded France, and France defended itself with gusto. After defeating the Austrian, but really mostly Prussian, invasion force, they did what any new belligerent power would do in that situation. You know, they settled down, they got ready for a defensive war, began establishing diplomatic ties to let everyone understand that they weren't there to be a pain. They, well, actually, no, they didn't, they didn't do any of that. They weathered a few more invasions, bludgeoned their way through the war in the Vendée, and set about the work of creating the Batavian Republic. Now, I want you to understand, that's the broadest description I can possibly imagine for only the first three years of the first five-year-long conflict of all the little wars, spats, and quarrels involved in and following the French Revolution. If a week can happen in a year, and a year can happen in a week, then the period surrounding the French Revolution is, is more or less a few decades of a year happening every week in nearly every portion of the globe. Now, if you were to ask me if I wanted to get involved in that, I would do three things. First, I would stare at you for an awkward period of time. Second, I would laugh and laugh and laugh. Finally, I would walk away without saying a word, because who the hell would want to deal with that? I mean, sure, power usually means having a finger in all the pies, but smart people know that sticking your finger into a pie filled with molten magma topped with sulfuric acid and a heaping dollop of nope on the side is a no. I mean, that's, that's a hard, fast no for me. And so, of course, a lot of people wanted to get involved. I mean, not just a little involved, either. A lot involved. The results of this fact, to me, signifies one of the most easily understood early partisan quarrels in the United States. At the time, our modern political parties didn't exist. There were no Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Communists, or Greens. There were two major factions, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, who had recently been the Anti-Federalists. But in terms of modern political parties, there wasn't really a lot of resemblance. It's better to view them more as early incarnations of caucuses. The Freedom Caucus, Progressive, Black Caucus. The, the big difference is that these factions were broader, and they carried more power. The French Revolution was more or less the perfect place for them to act as the coalitions that they were, and the perfect opportunity for either of them to pursue total dominance. On one side, you had the Federalists, the incumbent power with notables like John Jay and Alexander Hamilton. While it would be tempting to say that these were the men who supported the status quo, that isn't quite accurate. The Federalists were the driving force behind the creation, structure, and the very nature of the U.S. Constitution that replaced the Articles of Confederation, 
They weren't tired old conservatives who didn't like change. They were a collective of revolutionary minds in their own right. And in many ways, they were quite a bit to the left of the rest of the modern world at the time. It's just that their revolution was one of a more um, consolidated federal government, you'd probably say, in juxtaposition to the hamstrung, essentially powerless federal government that was discarded with the Constitution, and more recently, like the woefully underpowered federal government of the Confederate States of America. Then there's the Democratic Republicans. They were the opposition party, so much so that they were originally called the Anti-Administration Party, after being the Anti-Federalists. But by the time that things started to get hot, the course of ideas had already begun to change radically. James Madison, the former powerhouse writer involved with the Federalist Papers, had seen Alexander Hamilton pushing for too much central power in the federal government. Madison soon joined with Thomas Jefferson in pushing for a more balanced system of governance. We would call him bipartisan, uh, moderate, or a centrist, perhaps. As it pertains to the proclamation of neutrality, the struggle wasn't just a matter of policy. It was a matter of who would write histories as the victor. The existent powers of Europe were strongly centralized forms of government. The old world monarchical order, as it were. Then there was France, which was burning, literally and figuratively, uh, for a government purely by the people, for a system which Madison called the tyranny of the majority in the Federalist Papers. A truly agrarian, liberal democracy. Plato was probably rolling in his grave about that. This is where I'm going to start kind of testing for retention. Um, I hope you didn't think the last episode was just a bunch of nice ideas, because we're kind of about to start applying them, and then towards the end, we're going to throw in a couple of extras. See, it's easy to look at the proclamation of neutrality and say that it's some sort of high-minded example of a pre-partisan, deliberative government acting solely in the best interests of its citizens. I mean, that's, that's pretty much the cheap filter that we put on any old situation. So with that in mind, I'll tell you what I think of that idea. Uh, it's a load of shit. For the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists both, their identity demanded certain actions of them. They had to behave in a way that both established and enhanced their agency. Uh, this includes agentic behaviors in international relations. Or, in more direct terms, they had to use the power to get more power. The War of the First Coalition, that is, the start of the French Revolution, was a way for both of them to try and do exactly that by exerting influence to guide events to their desired outcomes. The Democratic Republicans had a specific policy goal in mind, declaring the new Republic of France their ally, and then doing what that declaration would demand in any circumstance, economic, military, financial, and diplomatic support. The Federalists, of course, wanted the exact opposite. They they did have common sense on their side, since we kind of owed significant sums of money to some rather powerful banks in the United Netherlands. Plus, the Jacobins of France had kind of just, you know, collectively decapitated the government who helped us win our revolution. So there's that. But their goals didn't really require any sort of direct intervention, which we'll come back to in a moment. This is where things start to depart from the simple narrative of high-minded statesmen acting with disinterest. The proclamation of neutrality was a loss for France. The Democratic Republicans and the newly minted left wing of political theory. Think of it this way. There's a fight, okay? And in that fight, there's an underweight, inexperienced underdog who's ready to go against a bigger, stronger fighter who doesn't just have experience, but he has an incredible level of stamina. I mean, this big guy can't just take a beating. He can take two, three, five beatings, and he's still an effective combatant. 
Then behind that big grizzled veteran fighter, well, imagine a line of other fighters, some with similar qualities, but other who are pretty different. You might say weaker, but nonetheless, you've got a pretty dangerous team going. Now, imagine that you've got a lot riding on that one underdog. He's not just in agreement with you. He's an extension of you. His success is your success. Then someone comes up to you and they say something like this. Listen, uh, Chief, we know you want us to help the little guy, but we're not going to do that. In fact, we're going to do exactly the opposite. We're going to do nothing. Which means that the little guy is going to go fisticuffs without even getting a handicap. Now, it makes a certain sort of sense not to get mixed up in that from a purely practical standpoint. I mean, two small underdogs versus that big group of burly fighters, I mean, that doesn't seem like good odds, but there are a lot better odds than just the one, aren't they? Plus, if you look at it from the standpoint of agency, it's a slam dunk for the Federalists, because the steps needed to establish agency, like I mentioned before, or, or to assert power, are almost non-existent. All you need is a stalemate, and you win. And that is exactly what happened. And then it kept happening. The Jay Treaty saw to that in 1795, and all the while tensions rose higher and higher between the two parties, with one pulling for consolidated rule with less and less of an agrarian climate, while the other pulls just as hard for less consolidated power and more power in the hands of the yeoman farmers, away from the wealthy elites. And then Washington had had enough. In 1796, after John Adams was elected the second president of the United States, the world was given what is possibly one of the most wonderful but dense political speeches of all time. George Washington's Farewell Address If we were to separate Washington's address from its historical context, we would arrive at an all-too-familiar conclusion. Washington, by some bent of Prophetic virtue was able to predict the coming stresses and strains that his beloved constitutional government would undergo at the hands of the bad guys. And you remember them. They're the guys that want to transform the kingdom into tyranny. Yeah, those guys. This perspective and its variants are commonly touted by a huge variety of people across all walks of life. From Glenn Beck to Ted Cruz to Gary Johnson. And that's understandable. It's, it's simple. It's easy to do. It's easy to say. The common thread that binds those viewpoints isn't that they're great, though. It's that they're unfounded, ignorant garbage. See, Washington wasn't talking about the future. He hadn't looked into some crystal ball. He was talking about right here, right, well, I don't know, is it right then, right there? Either way, his farewell address is a wonderful list of criticisms and admonitions against the very thing that was already happening only eight years into what the United States is today all of which is wrapped up in a relatable yet matter-of-fact tone which he attributes early in the address to being the disinterested warnings of a parting friend. And all of this is done by implying that the solution lies in a question. What is the American identity? If you want the answer to that, you'll have to read the entire address. But since you're here and I'm here... I'll give you my favorite part where Washington hammers on the idea that unity is necessary for a civil society and that people who would rather be right than united are a literal clear and present danger to the very idea of America. Quote, the unity of government which constitutes you one people is also now dear to you. It is justly so, 
for it is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. But as it is easy to foresee that from different causes and from different quarters, much pains will be taken, many artifices employed to weaken in your minds the conviction of this truth. As this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidiously directed, it is of the infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness. That you should cherish a cordial, habitual, and immovable attachment to it, accustoming yourselves to think and speak of it as of the palladium of your political safety and prosperity. Watching for its preservation with jealous anxiety, discountenancing whatever may suggest even a suspicion that it can in any event be abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. End quote. Now, just real quick, here's a fun fact. That entire quote was two sentences, supplied with enough commas and semicolons to subsidize an entire issue of a scientific journal. So for anyone who thinks I have a tendency to make a sentence maybe, you know, a, a little bit longer than it needs to be, it could be so, so much worse. I'm more or less positive that if Washington were to narrate his own life from beginning to end, he could probably do it in four sentences. But that's an entirely different thing, so back to the subject. The squabbles that we've touched on so far uh, in the history of the U.S. aren't isolated. I don't have a complete list, but it seems unrealistic to assume that the Proclamation of Neutrality and the Jay Treaty were the only hot-button issues. Now, things may have gotten worse as time went by, but that's a symptom, and it's different from the problem itself. The problem came first. Remember, states are as the men are. So when these factions formed, there was a certain association that was made. Since they were each the good guys in their own estimation, each of these political parties began to form their own identity with specific platforms that created a sense of continuity, a rationale that linked together their views, actions, and goals. The individuals of which the parties were composed began to form into beings of their own, with a need for ontological security, for agency, and thus a need for a phenomenal world in which they were meaningful participants in a cohesive narrative. As events unfolded, they were given meaning and significance based on the needs of the party, and they were handled according to the goals of the party. Now, what has to be stressed, though, is that parties aren't people. Parties do, however, hold a certain power, a certain influence, and that's simply because the phenomenon of a political party with its own quest for consistent meaning and value is itself incorporated into our individual pursuit of the exact same things. We begin to identify as participating members in the process of a party, and as we do that, we sign on to be players. Vote for this candidate, draw this card. Repeat this canned argument, pass go, and collect $200. Maybe you don't get lucky, maybe you roll straight five, and you get to rub your Yahtzee moment in the other guy's face, but those wins, those actions, don't always have meaning outside of that moment, do they? And that poses a bit of a problem, if you ask me. It puts us in a position where, when someone steps out of line, the boundaries between individual and party, between party and reality, all run into each other and they get murky 
not unlike a, a badly done watercolor painting. We react in a way that compounds that problem where this new development, this rogue Bernie Sanders voter or that all-too-stereotypical Trump voter, confirm with one series of choices what we would like to believe about the existence of brass and iron souls around us, and maybe among us, too. Now, we don't do this for any real factual reason, either. It's just an event. It's, it's a single thing that we incorporate into our own phenomenal bubble. If you believe that all leftists are secretly violent ideologues, your belief will then compel you to confirm that. And events like those in Portland and Alexandria offer that opportunity. When those are the rules of the game, should we be surprised when the circumstances we face provoke a deeply personal and meaningful reaction? Now, your response to all of this might be that we should just do away with party politics. And I can't really blame you for that, but I think that's giving parties, factions, and coalitions too unique a place in the pantheon of events that shape us into what we will eventually become. It forces you to take one specific view of things, a view with a very strange name. The Combine. The Combine is a concept used beautifully by Ken Kesey in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a book which is, by the way, my all-time favorite. Mixed into the ragtag, oddball cast of characters is one character who is haunting, untouchable, and yet relentlessly human, and he's called Chief. Chief is a longtime patient of the ward and has committed himself to relentless battle of the wills against Nurse Ratched, whom he calls Big Nurse. He pretends to be a mute, to be incapable of speech, and he skulks around performing whatever task is given to him but always observing, always watching. He's a fairly simple man, but he's perceptive, and his ability to reduce complex concepts and events into the simplest of terms is his most wonderful trait as a character. His penchant for then conveying those concepts in terms that, while simple, are disturbing and morbid is both beautiful and heartrending. I'll just read you a passage from his perspective where the Combine is put on display. Quote, All those spindles reeling and wheeling, and shuttles jumping around, and bobbins ringing the air with string, whitewashed walls and steel-gray machines, and girls in flowered skirts skipping back and forth, and the whole thing webbed with flowing white lines, stringing the factory together. It all stuck with me, and every once in a while, something on the ward calls it to mind. This is what I know. The ward is a factory for the Combine. It's for fixing up mistakes made in the neighborhoods and in the schools and in the churches the hospital is. And when a completed product goes back out into society, all fixed up good as new, better than new sometimes, it brings joy to the big nurse's heart. Something that came in all twisted, different, is now a functioning, adjusted component. A credit to the whole outfit and a marvel to behold. Watch him sliding across the land with a welded grin, fitting into some nice little neighborhood where they're just now digging trenches along the street to lay pipes for city water. He's happy with it. He's adjusted to his surroundings, finally. And the light is on in his basement window way past midnight, every night, as the delayed reaction elements the technicians installed lend nimble skills to his fingers as he bends over the doped figure of his wife, his two little girls, just four and six, the neighbor he goes bowling with Mondays, 
he adjusts them like he was adjusted. This is the way they spread it. And when he finally runs down after a preset number of years, the town loves him dearly, and the paper prints his picture helping the Boy Scouts last year on Graveyard Cleaning Day. And his wife gets a letter from the principal of the high school, how Maxwell Wilson Tabor was an inspirational figure to the youth of our fine community. End quote. Ken Kesey, who himself spent time with patients on hallucinogenic drugs and, you know, spent time taking plenty of the same sorts of drugs, wasn't sure that insane people were really insane. They were just... different. Psychiatric wards were, for him, literal people repair centers, where the very essence of who a person is can be ripped out, inspected, retooled, replaced, reinstalled. When a broken man entered on one side, he emerged on the other, a new version of himself, with a fresh coat of wax and equipped with new, warrantied valve stems. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is about people who have an idea of what other people should be like, and who then take it on themselves to remake individuals. Individuals who don't necessarily have anything wrong with them, and their willingness to comply to that idea is completely immaterial. You go in and maybe you resist, maybe you don't, but eventually they bust you up and then they put you back together in the approved shape, size, and demeanor of the standard operating procedure. It would be hilarious if it weren't so deeply horrific. And I think that American politics has more than a little bit of that tone to it if you stop and take a look. In fact, you see it all the time in common political rhetoric. The Blaze recently released a piece highlighting a blog post by John C. Wright, where, due to some problems in his son's Boy Scout troop, he employed a painfully unoriginal rehashing of the Combine to smear left-leaning people. A similar thing took place in the storytelling that brought us the odd and rather unremarkable documentary The Brainwashing of My Dad, where a man's character is examined before and after he started listening to conservative radio in the 80s and watching Fox News. I wish I were kidding about that, but it's real, it exists. And yes, I watched it. And yes, I regret it. A recent article from Breitbart News highlights another instance of this, covering statements made by Mark Levin regarding James Hodgkinson. Quote, I make no excuses for a murderer or a would-be murderer, like this guy Hodgkinson. But on the other hand, I make no excuse either for the rhetoric of the left, for the media coverage on the left, for the nature in which our president has been attacked, where assassination becomes mainstream, end quote. The implication made by Levin and by many others is that the views, ideas, and rhetoric of the left is not unlike the Combine. A perfectly normal American can be dismantled, fixed up, reassembled, and set on their own battery to run down, all the while toiling away at their neighbor, their spouse, their children, and the result is something that is at best subhuman, neither beast nor human, but a hybrid of the two, where the power and facility of a human is merged with this sort of feckless cruelty of an apex predator all wrapped into the tired, quaint concept of a brainwashed Soviet sleeper agent reporting to the front in a culture war. Levin went on to say that he didn't remember any of that happening with Obama or Bill Clinton. This despite picture and video evidence where we can see Barack Obama in effigy, lynched and being burned. Despite trying to impeach a president over being a bit too hands-on with an intern, 
but we also kind of seem to be eager to dismiss or vindicate presidents on both sides who committed war crimes. And that's really the crux of it, I think. The selective accusations, the choice of believing that we, whoever we are, and the good guys, and they are the bad guys, but how do you find out who they are? See, that sort of assumption in order to perceive the world in a consistent light can often demand that we ascribe a conscious and nefarious goal to things which cannot have either of those attributes. Collections of ideas, inanimate corporations, simple terms of identity like Democrat, Republican, or Independent simply are not willful actors. They're things which willful actors use, pieces on a board to be moved, held, or exchanged as needed, but to say that someone is a cog in the machine of the left is just incoherent, as much as saying the, the same thing about someone on the right. I mean, think about it. What, what does that sort of accusation carry with it? It makes an assumption that we can just plug people into a system and they lose all sense of self, because a system can exist all on its own, when in reality, they're merely extensions of ourselves. And we make them what they are, not vice versa. The influence they hold is the same as a piece on a chessboard. And if that piece is deemed valuable, then we find ourselves doing all sorts of things, feeling all sorts of things, as a result of its security, peril, or loss. And then there's the baked-in inference that one side is the good guy while the other is the bad guy, but... Like I said before, show me a hero and I'll show you a monster. Somewhere in the midst of the hubbub about the violent, radical left, we've forgotten a lot of things. We've forgotten that Jason Dalton gunned down six people while saying, Make America Great Again. We've forgotten that Scott Michael Green, a Trump supporter, murdered two police officers after being removed from a game where he waved a Confederate flag at African-American eventgoers. We've forgotten that a 69-year-old woman was punched in the face by a man at a Trump rally as Trump was reminding his supporters that they weren't deplorable. They were hardworking. We've forgotten that an Indian man was mistaken for a Muslim in a restaurant, and before being assaulted, he was told, We've got a new president, you fucking faggots. My point isn't that if the other side does it, it's okay for my side to do it. My point is that it happens on both sides. And if we use the misdeeds of some to transform the other into some version of the combine, we can only do so after we've ignored evidence that we are the same quiet factory of terrors that we imagine others to be. But, if you've committed to your own quiet factory of terrors, how far do you go? What's permissible? What's appropriate at that point? And who has the right to stop you? Most importantly of all, are you in the real world? Are you maybe just a bit too caught up in the game? And that's something that I wonder about a lot, and as per usual, I have no answer. I know that my ideas aren't perfect, I know that I'm not perfect, and I know that things aren't always the way they seem on the surface, but how do you actually go about untangling that particular knot? I mean, that's a Herculean effort for anyone in any circumstance but it's made much more difficult when there is a game being played whose rules and mechanics we are typically never even aware of. It isn't that it's useful or even honest to call liberals self-satisfied, it's that it's necessary. Telling a Trump voter they want people to die from a lack of health care is also somewhat untrue and dishonest, but again, it's necessary, so that doesn't matter. It's a strategy, it's a casus belli. And to be fair, I don't think any of this is unique to the U.S. For an easy example, 
Uh, the U.S. isn't the only place where people think that the world was better rather than just different in the past. I mean, there's a specific phenomena called jolly old England. I mean, it seems far more reasonable and accurate to simply admit that this isn't the product of time or location. It's the product of people across the globe and throughout all of time. It doesn't happen because we're idiots either. Idiots don't go to the moon or harness the power of nuclear fission. Nor do they invent highly complex digital networks or networks on top of those that are themselves composed of still more networks. We aren't stupid. We aren't mindless brutes. We aren't perfect either. Instead, we are highly sophisticated apes with specific and powerful psychological requirements. So if humans build their own sort of custom phenomenal realities, and we do so in order to create a sense of order, continuity, and agency, we arrive at an interesting question. Are those patterns, and thus our need for said patterns, man-made? Or are we adapted to concrete, meaningful patterns which already exist? And that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. And to explore that, we're going to turn to statistics. Yeah, I know, math is awful. Don't worry, I hate it as much as you do, but it's important, and it has to do with something that is not statistics. Apophenia. Apophenia is the human tendency to draw links between seemingly unrelated things, and thereby assign meaning according to those events which strike them as being reasonable, not by virtue of analysis, but by virtue of agentic necessity. I could give an elaborate example, but it's crunch time, and I'm lazy, so Alex Jones. Hey, that man's pretty much a case study in apophenia. And look, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll try not to go for low-hanging fruit anytime soon, I promise. I'm not going to make another Alex Jones joke for at least one episode starting at the beginning of this episode. Either way, there's an amazing amount of information out there about apophenia, but my favorite is one of the first papers I read on the subject. Now, there are others which are more in-depth and which you should certainly track down and read, and certainly there are plenty which are peer-reviewed, but this one has the best quality of all. It's easy to read. In the paper Apophenia in Cognition, John Roski, a linguistics graduate student of Stony Brook University, is appropriately good at communicating. In this paper, he addresses the questions of how we go about assigning meaning and patterns to events. To do this, he sets up a statistical experiment, which he describes as follows. Quote, a hint at this lies in statistics, where humans make a formal practice of drawing patterns between otherwise isolated data points in a set. Statistics has the wondrous property not only of finding correlations between data, but in evaluating the methods used to find such data. A part of this is the ability to define errors in data finding. Statistics divides these errors into two types. The first error, a type 1 error, is formally true when a condition's null hypothesis is true but is rejected. In simpler terms, a type 1 error is a false positive, where a result indicates that a given condition is present when it actually is not present. Philosophical measures of skepticism and Occam's razor take this error as their guiding points. This error even surfaces in folktales like The Boy Who Cried Wolf, where a wolf was claimed to be present when a wolf did not actually exist. The converse of this type is noted as a type 2 error. In this, a null hypothesis is formally false but erroneously fails to be rejected. This error fails to draw a relationship where one should be, or fails to note a set of data significance where significance exists. A miss. 
This error type is a false negative, where the test disregards an actual hit and sees it as a miss. In the wolf analogy, the investigator would fail to call a wolf when a wolf was existent. End quote. Now, just to clarify, a null hypothesis in statistics is the starting assumption that point A is not linked to point B. It is, like most scientific standards, entirely against our own intuition. And this could be for a number of reasons, but I want you to consider a specific possible explanation. Agency, routine, and predictability. Elsewhere in the paper, Rosky points out the willingness of a devoutly religious person to see a piece of toast and then to see the Virgin Mary in the color variances of that toast, and thus imbue that link with significant meaning, as it should since that slice of bread just got promoted from breakfast to relic, but we can easily create scenarios which manifest in other ways. As a quick example, take a diehard evangelical American voter. If you're convinced that you're being persecuted or will soon be persecuted for your beliefs, what sort of links do you draw between your A's and B's? Even if the A's, the B's, and the links between them are revolting, terrifying, dangerous, or just completely false. Now, you might not think that people would be aware of null hypotheses or type 1 and type 2 errors, but we're actually quite aware of them. When was the last time you were cut short and told that A had no relation to B? And when was the last time you did that to someone else? Was it discussing Pizzagate? Or the Illuminati? I mean, if you've done that or had it done to you, welcome to statistics. Now, if you've had the words correlation is not causation, therefore you're a liar thrown at you, welcome to epistivism with a side of statistics. They're different, but they're both still fun. Regardless of the everyday person's ability to expertly manipulate a null hypothesis, we still see them being challenged. Things which we might ordinarily not link together suddenly become connected for us, and thus we move forward in our computations as our own priorities, experiences, goals, and needs demand. For some, the foundational links rarely change, if ever, and we call these people consistent, which is true, but not necessarily a compliment. I, for one, would rather be wrong in a dizzying variety of ways before finally being right over just being wrong in the same way, year after year. Others change it up a little bit more often, while still others seem to change hypotheses and links more often than they change their underwear. And for a happy, hygienic subgroup within that demographic, that means that opinions will change more than once a day. Ultimately, people move through their lives jumping from truth to truth. And when I've questioned that in the past, it's been implied that I'm something of a relativist. I mean, it's, it's never been an outright accusation, of course, but the implication is sufficient, especially since I'm not offended by it. I mean, being called a relativist is as damaging as being told your complexion is best suited to an autumn palette. However, the very idea that we spend our lives pursuing truth is, to me at least, alien and untenable, because that simply doesn't measure up to what we see. Nor does it draw any sort of consistent support from our daily actions and rhetoric, meaning that the very things we claim to seek have little, if anything, to do with what we really want, and what we spend our time and effort pursuing. We sacrifice truth for consistency in order to obtain security and agency as a default position. It's human nature. Thus far, I've talked a lot about weaponizing all of the concepts we've touched on, so I want to change tack a bit here to bring a few things into focus. Now, the reason for this is fairly straightforward. It is tempting and pointless to wage into some sort of sparring match by 
weaponizing a series of concepts. You will get absolutely nowhere by doing so, and your own hypocrisy will always be found out and turned on you with a devastating effect. Let's take a look at a fun little story to make that point. In the middle of the 20th century, a woman named Dorothy Martin began to dabble in automatic writing. She described the experience as a, quote, kind of tingling or numbness in my arm, and my whole arm felt warm right up to the shoulder, end quote. She then states that she grabbed a pencil and a pad and simply began to write. Her first experience with automatic writing was a message from her deceased father to her mother, much to her mother's displeasure, who found herself being counseled on when to plant flowers. Dorothy quickly progressed, though. Her messages became fraught with the language of false divinity. Archaic terms such as thee and thou began to emerge, and soon she was claiming that her writings were messages from God. She asserted that she intuitively knew her writing had to be fundamentally real and true, because the handwriting was strangely familiar, yet she knew it was not her own. The writing continued, and eventually shifted to stating that her writing came not necessarily from God, but from a representative named Sananda, of superior beings who lived on two planets called Ceres and Clarion. Sananda represented a group of people called the Guardians. These beings were going to come take her and her followers away. Now, granted, she didn't have many, but let's remember, one person who believes you control their destiny is about one more than the average person ever has. As time went on, she began to form a set of rules and standards, taking on the title of Outer Space Subordinate. Followers were encouraged to fast. Family members who questioned her followers were to be ostracized, even if it was a spouse or child. Your money was still yours, of course, but its purest use was had in funding your leader. And if your job interfered with your adherence to the messages from Cirrus and Clarion, your job goes. Sananda and Dorothy stay. Her followers, who were driven by a core group of fanatical supporters, progress quickly from what we might call functional citizens to deranged outliers, without gainful employment, who were now bankrupt and had become the movers and shakers behind now broken homes and families. Meanwhile, the messages from Cirrus continued. An apocalyptic event was coming. In September of 1954, the Lake City Herald ran an article with a headline that you'd only expect to see waiting in line at your local pharmacy. Prophecy from Planet Clarion, call to city. Flee that flood. It'll swamp us on December 21st, outer space tells Suburbanite. I haven't been able to find the entire article, so if anyone can help with that, I'd be really grateful. But I'll just read a clip from it that's easy to find to give you an idea of just what was going on. Quote, Lake City will be destroyed by a flood from Great Lake just before dawn, December 21st, according to a suburban housewife. Mrs. Dorothy Martin of 847 West School Street says the prophecy is not her own. It is the purport of many messages she has received by automatic writing, she says. The messages, according to Mrs. Martin, are sent to her by superior beings from a planet called Clarion. These beings have been visiting the Earth, she says, in what we call flying saucers. During their visits, she says, they have observed fault lines in the Earth's crust that foretoken the deluge. Mrs. Martin reports she was told a flood will spread to form an inland sea stretching from the Arctic Circle to the Gulf of Mexico. 
At the same time, she says, a cataclysm will submerge the West Coast from Seattle, Washington, to Chile in South America. End quote. Her followers, after this announcement, would transition from meetings to discuss messages and the protocols demanded by them to moving into Dorothy's home. When this basement arrived, they were told, all metal would have to be removed or it would cause burns while flying in these wonderfully advanced spacecraft. Buttons, zippers, clasps, jewelry, piercings, shoe eyelets, and brassiers would all need to be discarded before setting off on their celestial voyage. One follower later admitted after being told to remove her brassiere that, quote, the only metal on me was the fillings in my teeth, and I was afraid someone would mention those, end quote. The spacemen were scheduled to arrive the first time at four in the morning on December 17th, 1954. The last of the cult followers trickled back into Martin's house from her backyard around 5.30, where they discussed what went wrong when nothing happened. It was decided, or rather decreed, that the spacemen were testing their preparedness, just not their faithfulness. When the real time came, they had to be sure that all of their earthly supplicants would be able to make it to safety. Doomsday was promptly and reasonably rescheduled for another date in the uncomfortably near future, also known as 18 hours away from the moment they stopped waiting in the backyard. So, that takes us to midnight on December 18th of 1954. Martin sent out a frantic call to her followers. Now was the time she had received a message. Except, again, she was wrong. They gave up waiting around 2 a.m., only to be rewarded through Dorothy later that same day by the Guardians with a new message. It was repetitive, disjointed, but repeated the same claims. I have never been tardy. I have never kept you waiting. I have never disappointed you in anything. So, of course, the tardiness of the Guardians delayed them from the 17th to the 21st, during which time the Seekers, Dorothy's followers, were kept waiting and they were summarily disappointed when absolutely nothing happened. Again. But this was a moment that had been advertised in print, and so for the final time, the Guardians violated their three promises again, not just in front of the Seekers, but in front of an audience that was small but keen. The event played itself out yet again on Christmas Eve. This time, after being explicitly advertised, everyone in the area knew about it, not because the newspaper had found out like last time, but because Dorothy went to them with a press release. She wanted people to know what would happen, or rather, it turned out that she wanted an audience to see that nothing would happen, because that's how it went down. Dorothy's merry band of intergalactic truth-seekers fell apart slowly over time from that point forward, until the outer space subordinate herself was run out of town with the threat that she would be arrested and committed if she didn't commit herself. She traveled to Peru, where she lived for several years as a member of the Brotherhood of the Seven Rays, taking on the name Sister Thedra. She never gave up on the Guardians, eventually moving back to the U.S. in 1961, switching locations between Arizona to California and then back to Arizona again, where she formed the Association of Sananda and Sanat Kumara in 1965, and would continue to preach the dooming words of Sanada and Kumara, the Guardians, until her death in 1992. And this association still exists, by the way, and you can sign up for their newsletter, Call to Arms. As of this recording, I've mailed an inquiry about how to get said newsletter, but I haven't heard back yet. Then again, my letter also hasn't been sent back to me, so we'll see how that works. Oh, yeah, and Sananda? 
was also Jesus. Did I, did I, I don't know if I mentioned that. I don't think I did. No. Are you surprised though? When we look at such individuals as Dorothy's followers, it's easy to separate ourselves from them. Automatic writing is a scam. The fault line that was supposed to create an inland ocean, presumably the uh, Great Divide, one line in the Continental Divide that goes across North America, has done no such thing. More fools they, right? Well, not as much as you might think. We have a unique vantage point on this story because we live after it happened. We can observe the predictions made by Dorothy Martin and her followers and determine that none have come to pass. We can then conclude reasonably that she was a liar and a charlatan who preyed on what we call the weaknesses of others. That is, of course, a phrase that's worded very carefully. The weaknesses of others inspires the idea that that weakness is in others, not us. I'm special, exempt, just like you are in your mind, just like others are, but not them, whoever them is. But on top of that, I have a hard time accepting that hand-waving a group into a special idiot status is a very solid way to approach the issue. Descriptions that follow the same general message, they were a bunch of loonies or they were stupid, can all have a significant meaning attached to them and are apt, but only in a retroactive sense or when viewed through a comparative lens against other retroactive observations. After all, the Seekers were far from the first bizarre group who held onto some truly baffling ideas. They even failed to be unique in that they were and are far from being the last. Language that relies on this sort of mechanism is somewhat inadequate to strike at any sort of fundamental, testable, repeatable, falsifiable, and observable truth. In other words, it's a really great way to commit a Type 2 error. You are more similar to the Seekers than you would ever like to admit. Yet dismissal creates a scenario where that observation is true, but denied. We are not immune to being the prey of prophets, just like we are not immune to believing in stupid economic policies or political ideologies. It doesn't have to be a religion or a weird cult for someone to not want us to think. And it doesn't have to be complicated to admit that people who don't want us to think never act with our best interests in mind. It's tempting to point out when someone has committed a Type 2 error, or is trying to resolve a case of cognitive dissonance with some sort of ineptitude, or is playing on the emotions of others to get their way. Hence why I've talked about weaponizing ideas so much. But what about when I do it? What about when you do it? The general metric for not being sucked into a bad idea is to know why that idea is bad and understand how it can pull you in. But the part we usually skip over, because we're more comfortable dealing with the subject using vague generalities, is where we actively, consciously choose not to engage in, perpetuate, or condone the actions that can have similar effects coming from us. And going back to something I said earlier, these situations aren't rigid forms where a person gets plugged in and takes a shape which previously was not their own. Our social ills aren't inflicted on us, they come from us. We design, create, deploy, and perpetuate them on an individual level. All of us do. We play games with specific names and observed mechanics. Games with titles like Why Don't You Yes But, Cops and Robbers, I'm Only Trying to Help You, and Homely Sage. No, really, those are real names for real observed interaction dynamics. Games is a legitimate psychological term, and so is gimmick which is a term that addresses our motivations for playing a certain game at certain times and assuming certain roles in said games. For example, are we doing it for attention? Are we 
redirecting our frustration and anger, perhaps onto a target that can't defend itself. These are all elements in an area of study called transactional analysis. Of course, we can weaponize transactional analysis too. If you know the rules of the game and your opponent doesn't, how easy is it to browbeat your opponent into submission? You wind up saying things like, Look, Karen, I see what you're doing and it won't work. You're trying to get attention and you're taking things out on me that have nothing to do with this. In saying things like that, we justify abusing others in many instances by claiming to help them end their abuse of others, if such abuse is even occurring from their end to begin with. It's counterintuitive, but the point of learning about ontological security, about cognitive dissonance, about logical fallacies and well-reasoned rhetoric isn't to give us a hammer to beat people down with. We don't learn about games and gimmicks because it will help us win. We learn about these things for one simple reason. So you can see those moments of engagement coming a mile away or recognize when they begin to form around you and disengage. Turn off the competitive mindset. Give up on thinking about winning. Stop thinking about players and pieces, parties with winners and losers. Start thinking about people. Start being a good example of a person. And look, even if you're the only person that ever does it, then it's just as good a thing to do as if everyone in the world did it. Because it's still the right thing to do. And after all, you're the only person in the world that you can control. We should, perhaps in the words of Washington, distrust the patriotism of those who in any quarter may endeavor to weaken our union. To do that, we have to reject those who would abuse us, our inclination to abuse those around us. And part and parcel of that is maybe not playing things like they're a game. The speech sampled for today's intro is from William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech. The speech itself was given at the Democratic National Convention of 1896, but a reading of it was later recorded in 1925 by Bryan himself. A huge amount of thanks goes out to YouTuber Theremin Trees. A friend of mine introduced me to his videos some time ago, and since then I've been consistently in awe of his ability to explain psychological dynamics. Which makes sense, because um, he's a psychologist. And don't take my word on anything that I have said, um, or for that matter, anything that I've ever said or anything that I ever will say, especially when it comes to psychology. Go watch his videos for yourself and read the works he refers to. It's worth it. Special thanks are also owed to the British Museum, who released a video of the royal game of Ur being played by the original rules, or at least as we understand them anyway. The video isn't terribly long and is surprisingly engaging and pretty meta. It talks about how games suck you in before allowing you to realize that you've been sucked into watching the game being played, which is pretty much exactly the sort of idea that I was messing with before they even released that video. Because, yes, I've been struggling with how to approach this specific topic for about six months now, while the video in question was released four months ago. Knowing that, the result that you've just heard is probably a bit underwhelming for you, which is fine, because I can't control your opinions or perspective. We're all learning here. Myself more so than you, I think. If you'd like to know more, find this podcast on Facebook or on Twitter at Today on America. You can find all materials referenced on the website at todayonamerica.wordpress.com, plus a few extra goodies while you're at it. And if you have been, 
Thanks for listening.